the audience. Uh, how, how you guys doing? You guys excited? You guys ready to go tonight? So we're, we're going to start out with a little bit of a, a, a participatory reading, even though I'm the only one that's going to read it, okay? I'm not sure that participatory, participatory works anymore, but work with me. Psalm 92, check this out. Verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute, I don't know what that is, and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and at the works of your hands I sing for joy in verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very, what's the word there? The last seven days, something has um, struck me. And it's this. I have been completely and utterly enamored with the depth of the Word of God. And the image that I had last Wednesday night before I was sleeping was the Word of God sitting here and roots sinking deep in soil that is incredibly rich and out of this coming a wellspring of life. And and, and then I was reading this yesterday. Your thoughts are very deep, the psalmist says. Listen to this. The Hebrew word for deep is a mock. And a mock means profound. It's like somehow... Simultaneously, as we read these words in this book, they are written simultaneously with the hand of a scribe or a man, and yet breathed by God. They're they're somehow simultaneously written on a page, or in the olden days, a scroll, and yet Scripture says that it's living and active. It somehow simultaneously cuts and convicts and empowers. This word is so deeply rooted, so profoundly providing life that to do it justice, we better start pausing more often and just thanking God for providing us with this book and then providing us as believers with the Spirit to guide us into all truth as we open this book. You see what I'm saying? Now, now, now last week what happened is we started studying Greek culture a little bit and it became so, so crazy profound to me that at every piece of Scripture... It is written to a particular time in a particular group of people in a particular culture. And yet, like only God can, 2,000 years later, it still has this remarkable meaning for you and I. And so what we saw is that John writes to his readers in a Greek culture influenced by Asians with Jews living there. And we call that theos chaos, the theos, the Greek word for God, right? I hope many of you wrote home to your parents about that statement last week, right? Utter chaos it was. But what we saw the claim that John made was this. Um, All of those gods and goddesses, um, they're they're nothing. There isn't a god or a... There is the God. 
And the God sent His Son, Jesus. And the God and Jesus and the Spirit make up this amazing three-in-one trinity. And somehow, through the Son, you can have relationship to the Father. And then through the empowerment of the Spirit, you can live more like Christ. He pleaded with His readers, look, all of this junk that you're hearing, there is only one God. And so last week at the end of the gathering, we repented of all of the idolatry and the gods, including ourselves, that we had created. Now, l- listen to this. Tonight, John is going to continue, and he's going to do something very, very interesting. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in your pew. Just like the old school traditional church right there in front of you in the little handy dandy book slot. Praise God for the book slot. Anyone else? Amen. Just me. Now, 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 says this. Are you guys ready to go? Here we go. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you're a Captain Obvious, you can look in your Bible and see how many verses are left. Okay? How many? By quick count. Someone real quick, do the math. Seven verses left, right? There's just a few verses. This is coming to the end. Now, any good writer, when you were in school, your teacher would always tell you, at the end of your writing or your literary piece of love that you had, you know, transcribed, right? At the end of it, you would always bring it to summation. And this is exactly what John is doing. Put up verse... 14 or 13 for me. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I want to point your attention to a verse that John writes in his gospel that is called the the purpose of the reason that he writes. In John chapter 20 verse 31, scripture says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I write these things to you who believe. I write these things so that you may believe. So the first thing that we pick up here in John's summation is what we've been saying all along. This letter isn't written for a primarily evangelistic purpose. You see what I'm saying? John the Gospel, written to much of the same group of people, is written with an evangelistic tone. He wants his readers to believe that Jesus is the King and the Christ And it's very evangelistic. It's the first time that many of these individuals in Asia Minor have heard the gospel. But in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name. He's writing to believers so that they may be assured and encouraged. We've said this multiple times, that you may know that, this is brilliant, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is my cellular device. Do you guys all have a piece? You guys have? Yeah? Right? Um, I had my first cell phone in 2002, right? Size of, size of my face, Zach Morris style. But it was great because you finally had one, you know? Now listen to this. Uh, this is a BlackBerry Storm. Anyone else have a BlackBerry Storm? Must be a great phone. Okay. Uh, awesome. Listen to this. So some friends of mine, Matt McNeil, said, said that I should get a BlackBerry Storm because it's going to help me get my life organized. Okay? But for those of you that know my life, you know that I don't keep a calendar. Okay? Not, probably not good. Okay? I 
keep most things in here and some things I forget, right? But so this was going to solve all my problems, the Blackberry Storm calendar. Now, I got the Blackberry Storm, and while I was at the Verizon store, the uh, individual at Verizon said, oh, you know what? You can get the Blackberry Storm, but, but, but you know that the iPhone is coming out with Verizon in January. And I was like, say that again? The, how, how many of you guys have an iPhone, right? Okay. You guys know what it is, the iPhone? Have you heard of it? Yeah. Pr- pretty, re- pretty revolutionary phone. But, but listen to this. It's like the moment that I get this phone, this dude's already trying to sell me something else. And even internally, I walk away, even though I have the Blackberry storm that brushes my teeth for me, you know what I mean? Right? Listen, it's like I'm already ready for the next thing. Listen to this. It's like whenever I have something, the American culture portrays it in a way that you never really have it because there's always something else to get. You You see? And so for many of you, who live very self-centered lives, it's like, okay, and here's this phone, but then I need the iPhone. And then after I have the iPhone, I need the, the touch device, whatever that thing is. And then I need the 8 gig, and then I need the 16 gig. And, then, and you're never fulfilled. The word have here, if you're just glossing over, that you may know that you have eternal life. We said last week, this is our statement, Remember? We said eternal life is a gracious gift and it comes through the Son. And Scripture says that you have it. If you have the Son, then you have eternal life. Let me tell you, there is nothing else to get. That's why I love the gospel so much because in every way, shape, or form, it is completely countercultural. To culture is, I need more, I need more because I never can have enough. And the gospel is, you can have enough. You can have sufficient grace in Christ. And, well, but some of you are like, well, don't I need food? Right? Some of you Captain Obvious is on. I need water and food, Mark. Right? Yeah, yeah, I know that. But l- let me ask you this. If you don't have food for whatever reason, and you have Jesus, do you have life? Of course you do. So, even at the very basic of physical needs... If you have eternal life, listen, you have everything. There is no need to be distracted. There is no need for your heart to lust after something else. If you have the son John is writing, then you have life, eternal life. You have it. You need nothing else. And so now as he continues to summarize this letter, he does something very, very interesting in verse 14. Put the slide up for me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, listen to this, listen to this. A year ago, I confessed to all of you guys last summer that I become very care- careful in my prayers, that my prayer life God convicted me of, that, that in fact, of all of the areas of my life, God revealed that my prayer life was suffering the most. And these next two verses became bedrock verses for me. 
And so I'm incredibly excited to take this journey tonight. So listen, listen, there is like, if you, some of you women, if you go on a a week vacation, you got to carry like your three suitcases and your saddle, satchel or whatever that thing's, like you bring it all. There is so much to unpack in this. Listen, listen, first, let's do the Greek. Now, if you're stepping back, looking at this first and you're like, okay, if I would want to know the Greek words or the Greek phrasing of three words in this passage, what would they be? And this is the confidence seems like a pretty good word to know, right? Well, the Greek word is parsia. Now listen to this. Parsia literally means to speak uninhibitedly or to speak boldly or to speak freely or to have unreserved speech. So to come with confidence towards him is to come with a speech, with, with a vocabulary that's unhindered by, by anything. And this is the confidence, the, the unhindered speech that we have toward him that if we ask, uh, if I'm a Greek scholar, which I'm not, but if I'm a layman like I am, that word ask, I want to know what it is. Well, it's the Greek word aiteo. Listen to this. Aiteo literally means to beg, to crave, to call for. And this is the confidence, I speak uninhibitedly, that we have toward him, that if I beg, crave, call for anything according to his will, he hears us. So there's three I said, there's one more. Any guesses? Any guesses? His will would be a great thing to know for sure hears. What does that word hears mean? Now, the Greek word for hears is akuo. Um, have you ever been, my grandmother, okay, very hard of hearing, okay? And, and if you guys have hard of hearing grandparents, my grandmother wears a, a hearing aid that, I, I mean, I think I, if I wore the thing like I could hear it in Japan, I mean, the thing is so powerful. But listen to this. Whenever you're speaking to my grandmother, here's what she does. You're speaking to her and she leans in. You see what I'm saying? Because she wants to get... Akuo literally means to attend to, or listen to this, to give ear to. Now, d- don't hear me wrong. God's not hard of hearing, right? Like some of you are like, God's hard of hearing. You know, no, 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 right? God hears all, he knows all. He's not hard of hearing whatsoever, but, but he, he gives ear to this. So now let's break it all down in the Greek. And this is the uninhibited speech, freedom in speech that we have towards him, this great confidence that if we ask, if we beg, if we call for, if we crave anything according to his will, he gives ear to us. He turns to us. He leans in to us. Now, if you're like me, your mind's spinning and here's the reason. Because you instantly see the practical application, don't you? You're like, oh, well, this is great. This is, this is going to be nice. We're going to be able to put this in a bow and wrap it up, and Mark's going to be able to tell us how we're to have a better prayer life. The Word is so much deeper than that right now. Do you guys understand this? There is so much here, so we're not going to get to practical stuff for a while. So stay with me. Now, the big question I had about this verse was this. If I'm in Greek, Asia Minor... How is an average Asian minor in going to pray, okay? Like, what's their prayer ritual? If John is speaking to Christians in Asia Minor, then they have a context of Greek culture because they're Greek. God has saved them. 
And so now they don't necessarily look like the Greeks anymore, but they have that context. And so if I'm an average Greek, what's my concept of prayer? Now listen to this. We said last week, in Greek culture, there's multiple gods and goddesses. And, and in fact, it gets so deep that there's, there's major gods and goddesses, and then there's minor gods and goddesses, and then there's minors of the minors. There's a god and goddess for everything, okay? I mean, there's, there's so many, and, and really ultimately begins with Zeus. And, and when I say gods and goddesses, listen to this, I'm not implying that they're gods and goddesses, because they're not, they're fake, they're phony. You, you see what I'm saying? So when I call even Zeus, a, a, I'm calling him a Greek god that's fake and false, Okay, just like I would call Joseph Smith, just like I would call Buddha, all of those gods are fake and phony. They're not God. You see what I'm saying? That's the whole point of John. There is one God, and that God's name is Yahweh, who sent his son Jesus and then sent the Spirit. So just so we're on the same page. Now, the entire premise of Greek culture to prayer. There's multiple altars everywhere. You're like, hold on. That's, that's like Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, there's altars everywhere. I remember my, my history class of Genesis and remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like, you know, at, at altars and these, yes, no, no, no. At these altars, here's what would happen. Is they would give wine, they would give animal sacrifice, they would give monetary wealth to do one thing, to appease the gods. The whole premise of Greek culture is I give So the gods are happy. And so then, they believed that the gods would call them to do heinous, sinful acts. If you know Greek culture, you know that there would be mass sexual acts, and they would say that it's in the name of of God, right? All this crazy stuff was happening. And all to do one thing, to appease the gods. Now listen to this. When John comes in, and says that there is one God. Do you understand? He's not just coming in and like tweaking. He's coming in and massive overhauling their entire infrastructure. Let's read this one more time, shall we? And this is the confidence that we have according, uh, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Quick question. Does that sound like appeasing? Does that sound like I, I give and God's happy? You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like interaction. That sounds like a God who is love. And now you see how he's building this whole argument that Yahweh is not all of these other gods. Our God is a God of love so much so that you don't have to appease him. Why? Because the wrath of God was satisfied in his son Jesus. Now because of Christ, you and me and the people that are Christians in the Greek Asia Minor can approach God with tremendous confidence and uninhibited speech believing that God will turn his ear and hear Listen, listen, if you're in Greek culture, could you imagine how liberating that would be? You see, it's not just that I don't have to make personal sacrifice as atonement for my sin or whatever it is that the Greeks believed about atonement and sin and they had this underworld afterlife. It was crazy stuff. But now, John says, you can have interaction with God. He hears you. 
with the itsy-bitsy stipulation. Did you guys see it? That if we ask anything according to his what? To his will, okay? Another step back. You see? Okay, so he hears us, but he hears us if we pray according to his will. Now, he's already done this in 1 John. Let me read the verse for you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, he said this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Same word. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He uses this word confidence three times in 1 John. Twice about judgment. And now here for the second time about prayer. So the first stipulation is, if you're obeying his commandments, whatever you ask for, you receive from him. And now he says, if you ask according to his will. Well, what does that mean? Anyone? Right? You have to answer that question. And here's the way we'll answer it. And some of you guys are like, oh, he's talking about God's will. This is going to get dicey. You know, listen to this. Right? Listen to this. God's will is talked about in Scripture over and over and over in different contexts. There's a specific context that he's talking about here, and that's what I, that's what I want to talk about. For John's readers in Asia Minor, the will of God has been unveiled. How? Because John and the other apostles have come in that land and they've preached the gospel. It's confirmed by archaeological digs that there were Old Testament, Old Testament Hebraic scriptures found in that area of the world. And so those scrolls were circulating. But not just those scrolls circulating. Paul's already written to the church in Ephesus, which Ephesus is in Asia Minor. So all that to say is, God was un- un- unveiling his will through the preaching of the apostles and through the Old Testament texts. Now there's only one other way to see his will here, and that is this, in the, the waiting will of God. So does he mean we should pray in the will that he's already exposed, in other words? Or should we pray in the, the waiting will? Now what I mean by that is this. God is sovereign. Okay, that, right on. His sovereignty implies that he knows all, is all, is doing all for his purpose and good. And so if God is, in fact, sovereign then his plan, he already knows. Who doesn't know his plan is us, yours truly. Now, when he unveils it, either through activity or through fulfilling the promises of his word, then the unveiled will becomes revealed. Now, he is talking specifically, not about things that he hasn't done here, but about things that he has done. So when he says, if we ask anything according to his will, what he's talking about is all of the promises of the scripture that he has already communicated. He's saying to his readers, if you pray those, he will lend an ear. He will listen in. Because you're praying the very promises of God. Now, this gets tough for us because we, uh, we want to, again, just, just go right to the practical. We want to be like, okay, I can see where you're going with this, Mark. I can, but there's more. Verse 15 says this. And if we know that he hears us, okay, back up, equation. A plus B equals, what's the C, right? You guys all took math equations? 
How many of you guys are horrible at math? I see that hand. Good. Yeah, me too. Now, in the equation of John, here's how he's worked it so far. Okay? If you have the Son, you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, then you can pray the promises of God and God will hear you. And now he adds the last part of his equation. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If we know that he hears us, then we know that we will have the requests. Because he's hearing his promises. He's hearing the things that he's already communicated. And let me tell you something, even though timing is not promised, so some of you are thinking, well, I've, I've prayed some promises of the Scripture. I know that a promise is one that we were singing earlier, that, 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 that we, we won't go faint, or we won't be weary, but I've prayed that and I've still felt weary. Timing is not promised. But what is promised is that he will answer. Because God cannot lie. God cannot lie lie. The amazing thing about the scriptures, as much as it fails in American court, and what I mean by that is you can bring a document in American court and lawyers will still figure out a way to finagle it. You know what I'm saying? Some of you have gotten a speeding ticket before, right? Any, don't write, you know, right? You were going, I know, you were going 62 and a 60, right? That cop was just having a bad day. Listen, I don't know how this works. Some of you have paid a lawyer off and that lawyer has somehow finagled the ticket, and all of a sudden you were going 55 and a 60, and they're paying you. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like what, what, how does this happen? Well, listen, culturally, words mean nothing. Even if it's a written law or a written document, there are ways around everything. There is no way around the promises of God. No matter how high or long you look, there is no way around the promises. There's no path through them. There's no path around them. If God said it, it will be. And so what John is trying to plead his readers to understand, you have access to God. So beg. So call for so cry out and wait for the answer. Ooh, listen to this. What sound was that that I just made? What was, what was that, anyone? It was like a robin, a little hummingbird. It's ridiculous. Listen to this. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon, okay? Some of you guys have heard of him. He, he was a, a pastor who's passed away and... Uh, preached in the 1800s. Listen to this. He always had four to 500 people praying in the basement of his church. Pretty sure he understands something about prayer. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, you play with prayer when you don't expect an answer. Can I share one more Spurgeon thing with you? Listen to this. He says, boys, when they're playing with bow and arrows, I didn't play with bow and arrows when I was a boy, but some of you guys did. And he's old school, right? Boys, when when, when boys play with bow and arrows... They don't care where they go. They're just shooting arrows. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't care. It's the funds that... But when a man is at war, where his arrow goes is of utmost importance, Spurgeon says. And so John doesn't just stop at God hears 
and then expect his readers to jump for joy. He says, no, God hears and God answers. Because he has to. Now, if you're having this conversation with some people with different theologies, the danger is people say, well, that's pompous. That's pompous for you as a Christian to say God hears your prayers and God answers your prayers. And what I see in Scripture is, no, 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 that's reverence. I'm revering my God because I believe what my God says. And so when I pray His promises, I believe it's going to happen. That's not pompous, that's reverent. That's really believing that God is who He said He was. So now we step back from all of this. And ask you and I, what's the state of your, your prayer life? You see, John didn't just want his readers to, to be encouraged by some tickling of the words. He knew that to withstand temptation, that to stand strong in the face of of a powerful adversary, that his readers weren't just to be meditators on the Word of God, but that they were to be prayer warriors who constantly pray the promises. Can I ask you, what is the state of your prayer life? When was the last time you found yourself in the corner of your room, not praying a prayer that anyone can hear, on your face and on your knees, with your Bible open, reading it and pleading it because God said it would happen. For instance, in Isaiah it says that he will give peace, that he provides peace. Have you ever found yourself in a moment of utter despair instead of calling your friend and hoping to find some comfort in a human relationship solely? Oh, human relationships in the biblical sense are a blessing, but friends, they have to start with Christ. When have you found your trust and just rested in the fact that he said, I will give you peace? Listen to this. Your flesh whispers in your ear, no one is hearing the prayer. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever felt like your prayers were just, your, the enemy whispers, your prayers are in vain. They have no power and they mean nothing. Too often we hear that and we listen to that. Finally, culture whispers, your prayers will not be answered. There's no need for you to wait One more second. Here's my question. When will you, in your room, by yourself, with no one to impress, grab your Bible, and in the face of all of this temptation and the whisperings that are coming because you know they come, when will you say, in your room, with no one to impress, no, 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 the Bible says he hears and he answers. The Bible says he's faithful and he's good. The Bible says he is my ever-present help in trouble. The Bi- We're not doing it because we don't know the promises. We haven't memorized them. 
We don't really believe what verse 14 says, that if we, play, if we pray in the will of God, that he hears us. We don't really believe it. The reason I'm saying that, if we really did believe it, then we would really know them. Uh, I need some friends here to help me pass these out. I'm going to help you guys out right now. So if you're, come on up, invite the band to come up now too. Here you go, I'm giving you a little, giving you a little goodie right here. Go ahead and pass these out to everyone. Make haste. Thank you so much. Look at the, the volunteers are just coming up out of nowhere. Yes, make sure you get one of these. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go, dude. What's on this little bookmark that you're getting? is 65 promises from the Scripture. Starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation. My challenge for us as a church is three things. My first challenge is this, that we as a church will learn the promises. That we will commit and covenant to one another that we will take this little bookmark and we will begin to memorize the promises. That we'll engulf them. That when someone asks me where a promise is found, I would be able to regurgitate it. So my first challenge to you, no matter what your prayer state is, no matter where John's readers were, is that you and me memorize them. Listen to this. The ancient readers had to read off scrolls. You have a leather-bound Bible with the words of God just breathing out of it. And so begin to memorize those. My second challenge is this, is that you would begin to plead those promises. To in the depths of your soul, on your knees in your room, that you would plead those, beg God, to bring deliverance to your friends. That you would beg God to provide safety for your family. That you would beg God to give you strength in the face of temptation. That you would plead those with Him. And the third thing that I would challenge you to do is to wait for the answer. The biggest challenge with American Christianity is that we've already perceived the answer in our mind. When that answer may not be anywhere, what God would ever do but because we place God in our mental box, we're like, God, if you don't answer it that way, then you don't answer it. That's why we're not worshiping. Listen to this. The more you pray, the more you realize how God is answering. You see what I'm saying? The more you plead. Because people ask me all the time, so how do I know God's answering my prayers? Is he going to write it on some etch-a-sketch? Is it going to be on the whiteboard in my room? The more you plead the promises, the more you'll watch God answer your prayers, and the more He'll show you how your will and His will are very different. So friends, I implore on you to take that little bookmark and to memorize those promises, begin pleading those promises, and wait for the answer. Because it's coming. In Joshua chapter 23, Scripture says, His promises never fail. 
In Psalm 5, it says he will bless the righteous. In Psalm 9, it says he is a refuge for the oppressed. In Psalm 27, it says, wait and he will strengthen your heart. In Psalm 29, he gives strength to his people and blesses them with peace. In Psalm 32, it says he will guide. In Psalm 34, it says that he'll provide deliverance from evil. In Psalm 34, 9, it says, there is no want for those who fear God. In Scripture, he says, he he hears the cries of the righteous. He is close to the brokenhearted. In Psalm 34, 19, Scripture says, he delivers the righteous from affliction. He gives the desires of the heart to those who delight in him. Psalm chapter 46 says, He is a refuge, strength, and help in trouble. And Psalm 46, 11 says, He is with his people. In Psalm 48, Scripture says, He is sovereign. He's not going anywhere. His plan will prevail. In Psalm 50, it says, He answers the call for deliverance. In Psalm 68, He is a father to the fatherless and a judge for widows. Psalm 72, he will bring peace. And listen to this, church. Psalm 89, he will keep his covenant. In Isaiah 40, he gives power to the faint. In Jeremiah 29, he will be found when sought with a whole heart. Jeremiah 33, he will show great and mighty things. In Ezekiel 34, he will bring restoration. In Matthew chapter 6, he will provide for those who seek God's kingdom. In Matthew 17, listen to this, the impossible is done by faith in God. In Luke chapter 6, he says, if we give, it'll be given to us in the same manner. In Luke eleven thirty three, he promises the Holy Spirit. In John 3, he says that those who believe on the Son will have everlasting life. In John 5, he says he brings people from death to life. In John 6, he says he will not cast out those who come to him. In John 14, Scripture says he will come again. It's a promise. It's not a mere word. In John 14, it says great works will be done through his church. In John 14, 18, it says he gives comfort through the Spirit. In John 15, 7, he will answer prayer. In John 16, he will guide us in truth. In Acts chapter 1, 8, he says we will receive power to be witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 10, he promises escape from temptation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he says he keeps his promises. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says forgiveness is for the repentant. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, he said eternal life is for those who believe. And in the last promise of the scripture, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, He says, one day he will do away with death, sorrow, and pain. The question that remained for John's readers is the question that remains for us. Are those things true? Or are they just words to make people feel better about themselves? Are those really true? The words from the mouth of God. And if they are, what a God.
if they are true. What a God. If he did really speak them, why wouldn't we plead them? If he did really bleed on a cross, then why wouldn't we accept the access to the Father that we have through the Son? The promises of God stand forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.